you get to not pay taxes on the money going in. So give a billion dollars away without paying taxes on it and the growth. In return, you must give away at least 5% a year. Little rules around taxation and so forth that you have to pay a certain tax on the investment earnings, but basically it's tax-free so long as you give away 5%. You're listening to The Life and Money Show, a podcast that brings you the stories and strategies of people who are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth for their families and impacting the world around them. And now here are your hosts, Annie Dickerson and Julie Lamb. Hey, hey, everyone. Annie Dickerson here together with the amazing Julie Lamb. Julie, how are you today? I am doing fantastic. You are uh, not in the Bay Area right now. Where in the world I are you, Julie? not in the Bay Area. No, I had a brief stint in the Bay Area over the last couple of months, but I'm in Hawaii again, my home, my first home. And yeah, it's always so nice to be here all over the years, all the times that I've come and then gone and come and gone. Every time I come back, it always feels like home for me. All my family is here. And so it's always so nice to land here on the island whenever I come. So yeah, and I'm so excited because this is where I was born. Whole family is here. And so I grew up though in San Francisco where I have no family and never did. And so I grew up there. And so my worlds have always been separated. So my work life and family life has always been very separated. And I'm so excited because the whole team is coming to my home next week. You guys are all coming to my part of the world and my neck of the woods. And so super excited to have you guys here and to go hiking. And we're going to do like the sunset cruise and we're doing stand up paddleboard and all kinds of fun stuff. So yeah, I'm excited. Oh my gosh. I cannot tell you how excited. I still remember when some of the people joined the team early on a few months back when we first announced that we were going to do this retreat in Hawaii. And I remember them saying, wait, like a virtual retreat, like a Hawaiian themed (laughs) retreat with like Zoom backgrounds and we get lays or something. And we're like, no, no, we're going to fly you out. We're all going to be there. And I think you and I have both discovered in this world of remote work that in-person time is just so important. And, you know, for building and deepening those relationships, especially when day-to-day the work that we're doing has such an impact on people's lives. And it's such a huge responsibility. So we have to be able to be super tight-knit as a team, to walk in lockstep with each other and to be able to trust each other and have the same communication styles and everything. And that can only be really built on a deep, deep level in person. And so that's why we've started doing these in-person retreats. I am so excited to be there. I got my sunscreen ready. I got my good egg hat ready, my good egg sunglasses, and it's going to be a fantastic time. But let's transition here and talk about, oh my gosh, our guest here today is somebody I'm super, super excited about, John Palfrey. He's the president of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and he's had such an illustrious career. He's worked in education and the legal field for years, and he talks about in this conversation, he talks about how impact has always been at the core of 
who he is and everything that he's about from the time that he was a little kid. And through everything that he's done, that's always been central to everything that he's wanted to leave the world a better place than he's found it. And so it's just incredible, such an awe-inspiring journey that he's been on. And in many ways, I think he feels like he's just at the beginning with everything that he's doing and now capable of impacting at MacArthur Foundation. So such a unique story. Yeah. And it was so fun because we got to talk a little bit about the MacArthur Foundation, where they started, how they even came to be. And it's such a fascinating story and one that I was not familiar with before I met Sean. So it was great to talk with him about. Indeed. And at the very end of the show, John shares his life and money hack, which I think a lot of you might be familiar with if you've heard some of our shows in the past, which just give you spoiler alert, I'll just tell you now his hack is to get a copy of the book Investing for Good. So for those of you who haven't gotten your own copy, if you're new to the world of real estate syndications, our book Investing for Good is a great place to start. It'll give you soup to nuts, everything you need to know to really understand what can otherwise be a very complicated world of real estate investing. So to get your free copy, just go to goodegginvestments.com slash book. All right. With that, let's dive into our conversation with John Palfrey. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fine, Annie. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be with you. Ah, thrilled to have you here. Our listeners are in for such a treat today. Now, John, for about as long as I remember, I got to say, I've been hearing about the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, primarily, I got to say, through the radio, through sponsorship messages on NPR. And I'd always had some vague notion of the philanthropic ventures that you all undertake, but I truly had no idea of the sheer magnitude and the reach until recently. And I'm sure that I'm not the only one. I'm sure there are other people listening right now who probably are in the same boat. They maybe heard about MacArthur Foundation, but maybe they don't know too much about it just yet. And so having you here as president of the organization, I know there's no better person to share with us all of the incredible things that you do and the impact that you have, which is so much in line with why Julie and I do everything that we do. But before we get into MacArthur Foundation, I want to start with you. Take us back earlier in your story and walk us through your awe-inspiring journey, which includes, I'm just going to give the listeners a few highlights here. It includes authoring several very important books about how young people learn in a digital era, serving as head of school at the world-renowned Phillips Academy Andover, serving as a professor of law and vice dean for library and information resources at none other than oh, Harvard Law School, someplace you might have heard of, and so much more. So John, take us through your journey. You've done so much and walk us through some of those highlights and how you got to where you are today. 
Well, Annie, I'm thrilled to be on the podcast and have a chance to talk with you both. And I've been an active listener of both of your podcasts. And so I've heard both of your stories and really enjoyed that. And the chance to share my own is really a treat. I grew up, after being born in New York, grew up in Boston, the child of two academic pediatricians who rode the bus every day to hospitals to take care of kids and also to study the healthcare system. And so I think I'm really shaped, as I know both of you were, by your upbringing and kind of the dinner table conversation that we had around the way in which we could, of course, look out after our families and be great friends and so forth, but really to make a contribution more broadly in the world. And I'm super grateful to my parents for that kind of thing. And, and that really has shaped a lot of the decisions that I've made along the way in terms of trying to be a good person and be a good family member, but also to find ways to contribute more broadly through my work. So that is, I think, an essential part of it. You have mentioned a bunch of things along the way. I am mostly spent my career in education, whether as a law professor or as a head of school. And when I was head of school, I also taught US history, which was so much fun and did try to teach a little financial literacy along the way, something I know you both are quite passionate about and have had guests on about. And most recently, I have had the incredible honor to be president of MacArthur Foundation and happy to say as much or as little as you'd like about that uh, on the show. I'm curious, growing up with two parents as academic pediatricians, does that mean that they were teaching and they weren't practicing? What a good question. Yeah, sorry, that's jargon. So I think when you're a pediatrician, and I'm not one, you choose between a bunch of different possible ways. You could be in private practice and really just seeing patients. You can be in a public hospital, say, you can be in a teaching hospital. And so my parents were in a teaching hospital setting. I know any of you went to Penn, so there's you know a bunch of the Penn hospitals connected to the city of Philadelphia. And so my parents were kind of in those environments. So my mom was principally at Harvard Medical School as an academic matter, and then was at Children's Hospital Boston. My dad, for much of his career, was at the public hospital in Boston, used to be called Boston City, now Boston Medical Center, and at Boston University. So the way in which you go about that work is you are at once taking care of kids, and you're also training the next generation of medical students into doctors. So they were very much in the education and medicine space. Um, it is not the most remunerative of those pathways, but it is, I think, a, f- a fulfilling one, and they both pursued that through their careers. Got it. I'm so glad I asked. You learn something new every day. So as having two parents who are academic pediatricians, then I'm curious, you mentioned a little bit about those dinner table conversations. Did you ever get any pressure to go into the medical field or like, it sounds like your parents mostly focused on the impact piece and that's what you took away. Is that right? I think that's totally safe. And thank you for asking it that way. I think along with my two siblings, my brother Quentin and my sister Katie, we all ended up as being one way or another ahead of a nonprofit organization. And we've sort of ended up in the same zone. My parents were absolutely not pushing us to become doctors. I think they lived through a period where the profession changed a lot. And so we certainly saw some of the really positive things about caring for kids and affecting public policy, but also some of the frustrations of that. And it turns out we were all kind of inclined toward law in my sister's case, business school. So none of us ended up in medicine but I have great respect for those who have and really grateful to my parents for their service, but also the great example they gave us. Well, it sounds like the academic part of their professions is something that resonated with you as you then developed a passion for education. So talk to us a little bit about that. What drew you to education and the legal field? 
you're so nice. Academics is something I've always loved and I always will. And I actually, one of the things we'll get to, I suspect, along here is I don't have any intention of retiring in part because I love the work that I get to do. And I do think when you live a life of the mind, it is easy to do, even if your body has given out in other ways. But I think for many of us who do well in school growing up and have the various privileges cognitively and otherwise to do that, it's certainly something I just have enjoyed. And so you mentioned writing books and in writing and editing a pile of books, that's partly what I enjoy doing and reading books and kind of being involved in the life of the mind. So I feel really lucky that I've been able to do that as my career and somebody has actually paid me to do it. And so I continue also, even as president at MacArthur, I teach at Harvard Law School a class once a year in the winter. And so I get to keep a hand in academically as well. Let me nerd out for a second on the education and the digital piece there for a second, because I started my career as a fourth grade teacher. And so I have roots and I've always been passionate about education as well. And I remember back, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, people were starting to talk about this concept of digital natives, these kids who were growing up with a phone in their hands. They already knew at one and two years old how to use these digital devices. And at the time, they were just starting to grasp how that would shape and impact young brains and their lives. And so tell us a little bit, I know it's a whole entire body of work, but share with us maybe some of the high-level insights that you've gathered over the years. Well, thank you for asking about For a number of years, my academic research was focused on young people and how they were learning differently in a digital age. And we had a lab set up at Harvard called the Youth and Media Lab that was a part of the what's now called the Berkman Klein Center. And really what we had was a lot of young people in that space who were from all over the world who were telling us about how they were using technology and how that was affecting their education, how that was affecting their social life, how that was affecting really everything. And I think this was from 2004 to 2012 or so, so a while ago. And we now know certainly during the pandemic, how much every aspect of our children's lives, and I know you both are parents of young kids, this is all encompassing for our kids. I think we do not know ultimately what the long-term effects have been because we have not been able to do longitudinal studies. But the real research question that we were asking at that time was for children who were born after about 1982, that means that they were born in a digital era. They never knew, and I'm old enough to have known, a world that was pre-digital so that we experienced an analog world. So we were saying, if you only have known a world in which the digital is there along with the analog. How does that change the brain? How does that change our human relations? How does that change learning? And I think we have some insights along the way. And again, as you said, that's another podcast, but we're still learning and there's a lot of juries are still out. Certainly we need to limit the amount of time kids have online and get them outside. And I know both of you two leading intentional lives by design, you are out there getting your kids into nature and doing wonderful things and doing exactly what we encourage parents to do, which is to find the balance between the great learning that they can do online and with podcasts and on videos and all sorts of good stuff and games, but also making sure that they don't have a nature deficit disorder or otherwise not get outside and kick soccer balls and those kinds of things. So with a friend have written two books on it, Born Digital is one that was first written in 2008. And then that's really about the data. And then we wrote another book called The Connected Parent a couple of years ago that that's really about the advice. So if somebody actually wants more, go to your library or online or write me a note, or if you feel like it, go to a bookstore, you can probably find one of those. Yeah, it's certainly something Julie and I try very delicately to balance. I get such a laugh out of every time I try to explain to my kids. I'm like, okay, imagine there's a time when you don't have a phone in your pocket and you have to call someone. We had to like walk and walk to a place where there was a booth with a phone. You had these things called quarters and then you put the quarter in the machine and then you press these buttons. And then after a minute, they tell you, you run out of time. 
And they just like, it's a different world. It's only been a few decades, but it's such a completely different world. The world is changing in such a rapid way. And so I definitely want to get into MacArthur Foundation, all that you're doing there. One more question, though, as we're talking about your story. So you talked to us about how your upbringing shaped your views on impact and how you're contributing. And now I know you have two kids. Oh, you're um, so good. Yeah, good. And so tell me about how you tried to maybe use what you've learned about, well, everything to shape them and their journey and how that's shaped their story so far. Well, thank you. And I love the point about the phone booths and the old phones and how much kids laugh at us. We've gotten rid of most of our phone booths in the US, but if you're in the UK, I don't know if you've noticed this in London, they still have those beautiful old red phone booths and they're usually filled with stickers that maybe aren't all, all good. But in any event, it is funny to go to a place where they still have those artifacts. It's an interesting point. In terms of our kids, yeah, I mean, we, we have two, uh, two awesome kids. One's just finished his first year of college, rising sophomore in college. Another's a rising senior in high school. They are definitely sick of my lessons of various sorts, including about money, but also about hopefully leading impactful lives. I'm really psyched with the great young people that they have become. We have, I don't know if you've used the same phrase, but we have used the idea of flint and kindling on the money front, which is it's our idea that we want to teach them to do the things that's kind of the flint and get the spark and that we will give them the kindling. In my case, that's going to be paying through their college tuitions, which I think they both will go to college and then maybe a little bit to get started first home or a business or whatever. But after that, no economic outpatient care. So they're getting flint and kindling from us and that's it. And they know it. Um, and hopefully along the way, the Flint part is the education that you all have worked on so well. And I know you've been offering a thing for younger kids. Our kids are just a little too old for that. But if you do the teenage or older version, I'm sure my kids would, they might be bribed or persuaded into joining. I don't know. <laughs> I love that. Flint and kindling. That is such a good analogy. I'm definitely going to use that with my kids as well. I love that. That's so I'm not good. sure it resonates with our kids, but they've heard I've, it a lot. <laughs> I've never heard of that. I love that so much. Mm-hmm. That's such a cool way to look at it. Yeah, that's funny. I thought Julie would be the camping theme. You guys do a lot of outdoors yeah, and stuff, right? So it's go. sticking with the outdoors, outdoors theme. Yes. It's funny. I asked my kids the other day if they're going to leave or stay when they turn 18. And my son is like, oh no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here forever, mommy. And then my oldest daughter was like, nope, a minute I turn 18, I'm out of here, mom. So I'm going to have to talk to her about the Flint and Kindling thing. And (laughs) very soon (laughs) we have the same two kids in a way, which is our older kid. He wanted to go to boarding school in middle school. So he's been boarding since early teen. And our daughter, who has actually stayed home with us, has been much more closer to us. So anyway, we often have different kids for sure. Interesting. Do they have an idea of what they want to do after college? Yeah, I mean, certainly my older one is he's doing his first internship now. He's working for a startup in the sort of fintech space, and he's doing applied mathematics and data science and so forth. So he's got a pretty clear mode. I know, Annie, you went to Penn, but then avoided Wharton, if I remember your story. Yes. He's a little bit more on the heading toward Wharton. And my daughter is very into the humanities and is a, a wonderful writer and interested in history and arts, and she's a ballet dancer and so forth. So she's more on the humanities end of the spectrum. So we have, again, one of each. Despite our efforts not to be too gendered, we end up with one little more mathy and one a little bit more humanities like they'll both do something good i think i love it i love it well i definitely want to make sure that we have enough time to talk about macarthur foundation i did not learn anything about i didn't know about macarthur foundation until jason and i spoke and he said hey you should look into macarthur and see what they're up to i think you'd be really excited about everything that they're doing and annie you still remember i went and checked out the website and i was just 
blown away by everything that the MacArthur Foundation stands for and everything that you all are looking to do and all of the little various efforts that are out there to continue to raise money and be good stewards of the money that was given and and all of these things is just such a fascinating story. So if you would share a little bit about the MacArthur Foundation, how it came to be, that was, I'm getting the chills just saying it. (laughs) That was my favorite part was reading about how it came to be. So share a little bit about with the audience about what the MacArthur Foundation is, how it came to be, and what you guys do and what you stand for. Well, Julie, if you would like to be a spokesperson for MacArthur after you end up being a successful <laughs> entrepreneur, you've got a spot with us. I would um, love thank to. You. Thank you for the lead up. So the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation was founded more than 40 years ago, very generous family. And the MacArthur's had initially made their money through, in essence, uh, life insurance, actually, Bankers Life and Trust. And then as many wealthy people do, they invested in apartments and other land and real estate. So they owned more than 6,000 apartments in Manhattan. They also owned a lot of land in Palm Beach County. If you ever go to Palm Beach, you may have been on the MacArthur Park, which was the beach that was given by the family there and which we still pay some to help sustain and so forth. So they're very, very generous. And the way that the tax code works, as you know, when you pass, if you would like to avoid taxation and give the money away in essence to the public through a foundation, you can do that. And so they gave as one of the wealthiest families in the late 1970s, the money in essence to this foundation. It started with on the order of a billion dollars now endowment that is between eight and $9 billion. And what we do with that is to give it away for the mission that we've stated, which is to bring about a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. Annie mentioned NPR earlier. One of the things we have done more or less since our founding is to support public media. And so if you have heard the sort of sponsorship that NPR puts out there, it is uh, one of the two ways we are best known, which is for supporting NPR, which we do and have continuously. I think we do too little for great media and education in the world. And thankfully, there are those of you who do this for a living and give your education away, but we do too little in general in this country. So we fund that. The other thing we're best known for is probably the so-called Genius Award. So we give a fellowship, which is more or less 20 or 25 people a year. They are chosen without knowing that they are being looked at. They are highly creative individuals who are doing something incredible in their field. They are very often people who are doing work that's been overlooked one way or another, and that if they are given some money to do whatever they want, to lead an intentional life by design, to pursue their creativity, we give them no strings attached grants. So in September, we make phone calls to about 25 people. Right now, the amount is $625,000. So I know that's peanuts in the world of good egg investments, but for somebody who's, say, an academic or an artist or otherwise not highly capitalized in their life, to get $125,000 a year for five years with literally no strings attached to craft a life, to do whatever work you want. So if you want to buy a house, you can buy a house. You want to send it to Good Egg to invest in apartments, you can do that. If you want to give it to your organizations, you can do that. If you want to take a sabbatical, you can do it. The idea is to give people the kind of time freedom that you all are seeking also to do with your work. So I could go on and on, but I do think that many of the things that we do are deeply aligned with the kind of values-based work that you all do at Good Egg Investments. And that's certainly one reason I'm glad to be one of your LPs. What initially drew you to MacArthur Foundation? How did you come to, from a legal background, were you actually an attorney in the past? I was, yeah. I was, a, I was an attorney and I was also a, a law professor for about 10 years, as Annie said. So I have a weird career path. The way I was, I got introduced to MacArthur was I was one of their grantees. So they gave me money early in my career. In fact, they funded some of the work that Annie referred to around kids and technology. The main thing they funded that we did was a many-year research study that showed that there was a great 
firewall of China and other places were filtering and censoring the internet and doing surveillance. And so we and a couple of other academic research centers did that that research work. Anyway, MacArthur funded it. And then I was one of the people who got to be a selector of these fellows, which is a secret list. But MacArthur eventually, when I was appointed president, they said I'd been one of the selectors. So now I can say it. It was a completely wonderful thing to do. So I had been doing things with MacArthur as a grantee and as a kind of advisor for a long time. And when they were looking for a new president a few years ago, they, for whatever reason, they called me up. And so here I am. We'll get back to our conversation with John in just a minute. Have you been thinking about investing in real estate, but aren't sure you have the time or the desire to manage the investment? Perhaps you're afraid, like we were, that you'll make the mistake of choosing the wrong market or the wrong team and lose your entire investment. Well, that's exactly why we created the Good Egg Investor Club. We do the work of identifying solid real estate investment opportunities in the best markets around the country and then partner with you to acquire these investments and then we'll all share in the returns. We'll identify the growing markets, strong, experienced teams, and the solid deals. We do all the heavy lifting of managing the tenants and the renovations, and as a passive partner, you get to enjoy all the benefits of investing in real estate, monthly cash flow, long-term appreciation, and the ongoing tax benefits. When we first discovered passive investing through real estate syndications, we realized it fit perfectly into our busy lives. We could put our money to work for our families, work less, and get more time back in our days so that we could focus on what matters most and discover our true passion and purpose in life. We've now helped hundreds of people invest passively in real estate syndications and are seeing the positive impact it's had on their lives. We invite you to partner with us by joining the Good Egg Investor Club today so you can start putting your money to work for you and get more time back in your day because we know that when people have more time in their days, they can do the true work they were intended to do and the world will be a better place. To sign up for the Good Egg Investor Club, go to goodegginvestments.com slash invest and we'll take it from there. That's goodegginvestments.com slash invest. And now, back to our chat with John Palfrey. That's so fascinating. That's how worlds collide and opportunities come about. That's so awesome. I love it. MacArthur Foundation is everything that you guys stand for is so much of what Annie and I, why we even came together and why we do what we do as well. MacArthur Foundation is an inspiration to me and Annie as well, I'm sure, in terms of what we would love to see, where we would love to be able to take Good Egg Investments and all of the things that you guys are able to do. One question that I have is, can you talk to us a little bit about, you mentioned that the foundation started off with a billion dollars and it's now eight or nine billion. How does that happen? What needs to happen in order to grow a foundation? What type of investments do you make? How do you guide your investment decisions? There's a committee, I know there is, that guides those investment decisions. But when you're just starting off as a very small foundation, how do you grow to be the size that you are now and grow to have eight or nine billion dollars to be able to play with, what does that look like? And how long did that take? Is it 20 years, 50 years? Share a little bit with us about that. So it's such a good question with so many angles to it. I think the answer is compounding and it's something you guys know super well. In literal terms, that's a 44-year run. The important thing though is actually not so much what we have 
increase the endowment, but what we've spent. So the key here as a charitable foundation is our goal is actually not to grow the endowment. Our goal is to make the world more just, verdant, and peaceful, right? So the way it works with charitable foundations, again, another show, but is basically you are regulated by the IRS as well as your state attorney general usually. But the IRS says, once the wealthy family has made this deal with the government, you get to not pay taxes on the money going in. So give a billion dollars away without paying taxes on it and the growth there. In return, you must give away at least 5% a year. Little rules around taxation and so forth that you have to pay a certain tax on the investment earnings, but basically it's tax-free so long as you give away 5%. So in year one, to stick with the math, Julie, if you had a billion dollars and you were then to give away 5% of that, so let's call that $50 million, right? What happens in the meantime is you have invested those dollars in a variety of assets. And ideally, what you're aiming for is 5% plus inflation or better, right? So if your goal, let's just say for this 40-year period, I'm going to use super rough numbers, but let's imagine that inflation is 3%. We know it's higher than that now, but if your nut is going to be 5% payout plus 3% inflation, you want to get an 8% return per year in kind of today's dollars, if that makes sense. What has happened is that the return, the actual return has been higher than 8% over that 40-year period. And so if we're getting the kinds of returns that you all have generated through Good Egg. If you're getting 15, 20% returns on private equity, which is a lot of it, then obviously the compounding effect is going to lead that billion to go to eight or $9 billion, even while you were giving out hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So if you just use eight billion as a corpus. It's complicated. You put it over a bunch of different quarters to smooth the payout as do universities and so forth. But basically, so if you've got $8 billion, you're going to spend at least $400 million in grants and gifts and so forth. And if you're growing greater than the 8%, then the $8 billion goes up. If you do not, then the corpus goes down, right? And so it could, if you're getting negative returns in a year, you endowment goes down. So it is a spiky graph as all these things are, and it's public, you can see it. So the point is, how is it invested as I think most wealthy individuals do in a mix of stocks, bonds, not very many bonds, a tiny bit of cash because we have to be liquid and lots and lots of private stuff. And so it historically has been in things that you guys have put on your show as you had Eng Tang last time talking about oil and gas. We don't do oil and gas, but that's a typical thing. A lot of places have had timber, right? As an example, certainly rental real estate, certainly other forms of real estate and the privates typically have done much better than the public equities over a long period of time. And so you're balancing always liquidity which is to say selling the stocks or bonds or cash with the privates because they're not as liquid. But if you're in more private stuff, you tend to have better returns. So anyway, that's a very, very quick crash course in how the endowment has grown from a billion to 8 billion and hopefully done a lot of good along the way. Yes. Wow. Well, taking a lot of notes on all of that. (laughs) Tell us about the impact that you guys have made through MacArthur over the years. Give us some highlights about the things that you guys have accomplished. One thing I'd love to make sure I hit on also is impact investing, because I think that's a bridge maybe to Good Egg specifically. But you know, I think the whole point of having a charitable foundation, of course, is having impact. And if you go back over the course of MacArthur's history, some of it is investing in really creative individuals. So I suspect you two have seen Hamilton. I can't remember if we've talked about it in the show, but Lin-Manuel Miranda was one of the geniuses that got the award before he wrote Hamilton, right? And so I'm not saying that Hamilton came about because Lin-Manuel Miranda got the genius award, but the idea is to find somebody who is incredibly creative, give them the space and time to do something and have that kind of impact. And then we've had impact in a number of different areas. So our biggest area of investment is climate. 
So you know we've been investing in climate equity in a variety of ways. So we've been, I think, helpful to the mitigation strategies that hopefully are helping address climate change. That would be an example. And I could go on and on. Journalism, as you know, is sort of in a crisis right now, certainly in the U.S. And so trying to support public media and even actually for-profit media to find a transition in this digital era. Those are the areas that we have invested in. Our home city of Chicago. We have big efforts in India, Nigeria, around the world. So a bunch of different things. But the one thing I'd love just to make sure to hit is, in addition to giving grants which is just giving people money or organizations and investing the endowment, there's a middle zone which we consider impact investing. So we have a carve out of about $500 million that we invest. And the way in which we do that, it is in either a for-profit fund or it can be in nonprofits too. But the idea is to have impact through that investment that is social kind of return. And then if we get the money back, when we get a little bit of money back, that's great. But it's not meant to have the highest risk-adjusted return, which is the goal of the endowment. So there's this entire zone. I think it's of interest, or I would imagine it's of interest to organizations like yours, because I think there's a fair amount of money in foundations and endowments for colleges and universities, pension funds, others, high net worth individuals that are aiming for this combination of an impact through their investments where you want to get a return, but you're also looking for social impact. So we try to have impact through that area. I love that so much. So much of of why Annie and I do everything that we do is all about the impact. It's about the lives that we can change, not only our investors' lives and the families that they're connected to, but the people in the apartment communities that we're buying and the improvements that we're making there as well. And it's so fun. Annie and I got the chance to meet. We had to fly all the way out to Denver to meet for the very first time, even though we lived about 20 miles away from each other, but sat down on a couch and asked each other, hey, why are you doing this? Why am I doing this? And we came to the exact same answer, which was it was all about women and moms and families. And that continues to be what drives us to do everything that we do. And so, yes, absolutely. And I love when I learned about your impact investing, that portion of the MacArthur Foundation, I was really excited about it. And so, yeah, well, so excited about everything that you guys are doing there. I guess one last question would be, share with us, obviously, as president, I'm sure that there are a lot of things that you have yet to do and yet to accomplish at the MacArthur Foundation. What are some big initiatives that you want to see kind of roll out, I guess, short-term and long-term as president? Oh my gosh, what a great question. So I think it's such a privilege to have a job where I get to give away other people's money to make the world a better place. It's kind of a, when you say it, like, oh my gosh, I get paid to do this. Yes, it's a little crazy. I think one of the, and just to pick up on your stories, one of the things that we have focused on has been looking at the grantees that we have, but also the investees, the people we're investing with, and looking at the demographics. And as you can imagine, particularly in the endowment space, that's been almost exclusively white men. And so one of the major efforts we have had is to try to diversify the field. And I know this is something that you all have come up against and and experienced and pressed against, I think, really well in in the real estate field. But we are looking at, can we shift the amount of money that we have um, away from being so heavily white and male and toward more uh, women and people of color who are managers? That is one major initiative that we have. And and looking across the foundation, we're looking at that also with our grantees. So it turns out that the nonprofit sector is uh, heavily white, but actually has more women than men in many cases. So it's less about gender in that space, but really thinking about who's at the table. So take the climate field, for an example, that's one that has been the environment field, the conservation field, extremely white, largely uh, people like me, white men leading the organizations. How do we bring about change over time?
time. And part of that is for some of us to get out of the way. That's part of it. But it's also to invest in more diverse teams and to bring that about. So one of the things I admire about the company you've been building is that you've intentionally done that, as I can observe, as a diverse team. And I think that's really important and is not the norm, as you know, particularly in finance companies, being the better than I do. We're seeking to be good partners to a more diverse set of uh, grantees and investees. Exciting. Well, I cannot wait to see all that you guys do in the coming years. I'm so excited to be connected to you through GoodEgg and excited to see where things go. Thank you both all right. so much. Well, we are going to move into the last part of our show, the Life and Money Show Spotlight Round, where we're going to ask you a couple of questions around life and money. So the first question is around your life and money. So what is one thing that you're doing right now to live a meaningful and intentional life by design? Well, I appreciate the question and I've enjoyed listening to your podcast and hearing all the different inspiring stories of what you've helped to bring about for other people. And for me, unusual, I suppose, in the sense of really loving my job. And so I'm not trying to invest with you all to be able to do less. I actually want to keep doing this as long as someone will let me, although maybe should shift jobs at some point to give someone else a great a chance at this, but being able to do this work, but then also to be really present for my family. And so one of the commitments we have is between the 1st of August and for a couple of weeks, we always go to Maine and go hiking and spend a lot of time outdoors and to our kids wherever they are in the world. The idea is it's fine if they're elsewhere other times, but we're all going to be together in early August in Maine. So it's not that we're just working all year for those three weeks. It is definitely something that I think about as a way to keep balance in our life and kind of investing I can do with you is something that makes that possible. Hiking in Maine. Oh my gosh. I'm a big hiker everywhere we travel around to. I think last year I totaled up the miles across all the travels that we did. And I think we hiked as a family over a hundred miles across many different states, but I can only imagine Maine. Wow. I'm going to have to look up the hiking. Any good? You have to. Oh my gosh. Totally. Well, so I've listened to your show and heard you guys in the intro talk about where you've been, which has been fun. I certainly recommend Acadia National Park if you haven't done that. So where we go is Mount Desert island and the homes and the communities are really built into, I think, what's maybe America's most sort of per acre, uh, most trafficked park. So it's a incredibly popular, but really, really lovely. So if you have not gotten to Acadia and you are aiming for your next year of Life by Design, um, I hope you'll go there and let me know. We'd be glad to be one of your guides. Yes. Awesome. Well, so exciting. We've been talking about doing an East Coast version of what we did last year since we did a West Coast one this last year. So, well, super exciting. All right. Second question is around others' life and money. So what is one life or money hack that you can share that'll make an impact in others' lives right now? Well, since you mentioned the book opportunity in the intro, I would urge people to get Investing for Good. I don't know if that's coming up there, a book that I really enjoyed reading. And you guys even inscribed it to me when it came. I think I got one of the early versions of it, but I think I really do think it's a great book. And I've read a ton of different books on investing and particularly with the impact focus. And I highly recommend yours to everybody. I think it feel like maybe it's Andy's voice later in the book at the end, that chapter, maybe 22, where you describe if you were to put a certain amount of money, I think $50,000 a year for a bunch of years, you know, what could that make? possible. I think that is a beautiful encapsulation of what is possible. I realize for, as you say, for many people, $50,000 a year is impossible, but there's a version of that that I think can work for a lot of people. And on your podcast, I think Dr. Zhao, an example, but some of these have really resonated for me as busy people who are doing really cool things and they want to give back through their day job, but also want to invest their funds in a way that feels aligned with mission and their values. And I feel like you make that possible through Good Egg. And I think investing for good is a great blueprint for how to do that. The listeners can't see me blush right now. Thank you so much, John. You're too kind. 
<laughs> All right. Last question is around life and money in the world. So what is one thing that you're doing right now? I know there are many, but what is one thing that you want to highlight right now that shows that you're doing good in the world? You've been nice to focus on MacArthur Foundation. I feel really lucky to do that with amazing colleagues. I do think when I've listened to you ask this question of others on your podcast, I'm most moved by when people focus on what they can control really directly in their homes and the kinds of relationships you can have with your spouse and with your kids. I do think that's the most important important thing we could do. If we want to save democracy, if we want to save our planet, I just think if we are raising great kids who have a combination of self-reliance and strength and all those things that they have to have and skills, but also a sense that there is something bigger than ourselves in the world and that we actually have to do something. And really, that is why I most admire and invest with you is that in addition to investing in great homes and spaces and communities, you also give something back through direct donations, often through your company. And I think anybody to think about, yes, we should do well for ourselves and take care of ourselves, but also realize we're part of something bigger and raising kids that way, I think is really the most important thing that that any of us can do. I think that's such a profound insight. And when I think about those words, just verdant and peaceful, that's what I'm trying to instill in my kids every single day with every conversation that I have with them, trying to help them understand how to be more just with those around them, how to make the world a, a greener and a better place so that it can continue for generations to come and how to maintain and inspire peace. And so I think you're right. It starts at home with those you love, those around you. And through organizations like MacArthur Foundation, we can then amplify amplify that impact. So John, this has been such an inspiration and I'm sure our listeners are going to be itching to learn more. So tell them what's the best place that they can go. Wayne, thank you. And to both of you, thank you for having me on. I admit that I am totally petrified. This is going to be the least listened to podcast of your entire <laughs> series on this one and your other one with real estate syndicators, but I am truly grateful to have the chance to be on with you. You know, I think the best place to learn about our work is macfound.org. So it's M-A-C-F-O-U-N-D.org. Um, you can certainly Google MacArthur Foundation and see what we are up to. And we will look forward to, to getting feedback and being engaged, I think, in a journey, as you've said, towards making a more just, verdant, and peaceful world together. John Palfrey, president of the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. John, thank you so much for being here with us and our listeners today. Thank you both. You've been listening to The Life and Money Show, the number one podcast for people who, like you, are living a meaningful and intentional life by design, building true wealth, and making an impact in the world. For more resources, check out goodegginvestments.com and be sure to join the Life and Money Show community on Facebook. And if you got value out of this show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review so we can continue to bring you amazing new conversations. 